Hey, and welcome to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. At Cows, we like to keep things simple. We are committed to verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible to help people know, love, and become fully committed followers of Jesus. It is our prayer and hope that this message challenges, encourages, and equips you to that end. I'm going to be reading uh, Acts 15, 1 to 29. Uh, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching their brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem by the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? And we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may see the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of Gentiles who turn to the Lord, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has in every city those who proclaim him, for he is... Read every, for he has read every, every Sabbath in the synagogues. But then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, with both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, though we have give, gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. We are going to go ahead and continue on our journey through the book of Acts that we've been calling to the ends of the earth. And we're well over halfway now, which is pretty awesome. Um, it's taken a bit of time, but it's been an amazing, amazing journey. And last week, we went through the whole of chapter 14. Dave Dean took us through that, and he really focused on evangelism. And he wrapped it up by, by giving us this outline. He said, when it comes, when we have the opportunity to speak the gospel into other people's lives and to present the Lord to them, We need to discern the moment, meet them where they're at, follow up with them, and all throughout it, we need to be praising God, because He is the one who gives us the opportunities, but also He is the one who is at work within us and through us, 
And he's the one who's going to bring about the change that is so much greater than anything we could ask or we could ever imagine. But when it comes to evangelism, Dave wrapped it up by saying that evangelism isn't about efficiency. How many people can I get the message to? How many people can I get saved um, to, you know, in, in many different contexts, contexts that could be um, whether to secure that missionary funding so that you can stay in the field or just to feel like you're actually achieving something. No, evangelism is not about efficiency. It's about intimacy with God. And isn't that what our lives should be about in all aspects? Because God is not, he's not some nebulous force. He is the eternally relational being, and with him, everything is relational. So this week, we continue on, and we're going to look at Acts chapter 15. After Paul and Barnabas have been back in Antioch for quite a while after their missionary journeys, and they go through some conflict, as one might expect when you have a core of relational beings that are imperfect. Now, September 7th, 2022, joined by over 100 different people from various cultural and religious backgrounds, I had a really awesome experience. I got to be part of a ceremony that brought so many different people under this unifying banner, Australian citizenship. Now, I was pretty excited about that. I'm sure there are other people who are even more excited than I am. Um, but this, this citizenship ceremony was, to me, a really amazing event that happened at one point in my history. I have a certificate of citizenship to prove it. So if anyone, questions, anyone ever questions whether or not I'm an Aussie, I can point them to that official document. They may not believe me because my accent is really weird and muddled, but I can say I have my Australian citizenship. But that unifying factor of Aussie citizenship does not necessarily mean that there's going to be unity in activity. It certainly doesn't mean that there's going to be unity of thought. And I mean, you could just look at how many different political parties we have and all the different, uh, like, all the different debates that we have or just different preferences we have. No, there are many different views, sometimes and often even conflicting views. Everything from freedoms that Australians should have to live however they want to, to the definition of human life, to the role of government in that everyday life. Now, I may have my Australian citizenship, but culturally, I'm not true blue. And probably, I won't ever be. See, I grew up south of Seattle, moved to Canada in my mid-20s, and then to the UK a year later. And then after two years in the UK, I returned to Seattle And honestly, I didn't fit in at all. See, Seattle culture had progressed, and I had been somewhere else, and wow, that culture went this way, and I went this way. All these things, when I came back to Seattle, that I thought would be familiar were very unfamiliar. They were so different, but so was I. See, the people people thought that I sounded funny, and I did, Um, For some reason, people still think that. Um, I'm often accused of being Irish, which is pretty funny to me because I don't sound it at all, but that's all right. I spoke differently. I valued different things. I thought about things from a different perspective because while I'd been in the UK, I had been surrounded by a bunch of different people from mainland Europe. So I had all of these different cultural thoughts going on in my mind. And I was looking at things from a very, very different perspective. I was different in a very good way. And honestly, a good percentage of you can relate as well. Because we come from so many different cultures, even different religious backgrounds or linguistic backgrounds. And many of you who are Australian spent significant time overseas as well. 
And so this is feeling foreign is familiar to you. Now, the early church encountered something really, really similar. Not with Roman citizenship, necessarily. Well, not with citizenship at all, really. But with the only citizenship that truly matters. In Philippians 3, 20-21, we read, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body, by the power that enables him to even subject all things to himself. Now, as believers in Christ, we are not first and foremost Australian, American, German, Brazilian, South African, Malaysian, um, Indian, or British, none of that. We are in Christ. And being in Christ, we are first and foremost citizens of heaven. But we are also human. We come from different cultures, languages, generations, family backgrounds, and all of this means that we approach different situations differently, or we can approach the same situation from different viewpoints. See, we may have our heavenly citizenship. It was given us to the moment that we placed our faith in Christ, and we were declared righteous by God justified in him, free from the penalty of sin. But heavenly citizenship does not mean that our cultural outlook will instantly change. That takes time. It's a process, the process that we call sanctification. And even then, we will not always approach situations the same way as our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who are also heavenly citizens because we come from different earthly cultures. What we'll see, we will see, we will understand, and we will approach and do things differently. And differences can produce conflict, but they need not produce division. And in the body of Christ, mere differences must not produce division. As Christians, we must remember to keep the emphasis on Christ. We must abide in Him, in our doctrine, and in the everyday. As one philosopher has said, a Christian without Christ is simply I-A-N, and Ian cannot help you. Now, some of us know an Ian, and I certainly don't want to brand any Ians with a negative light, so we'll say Yen. We have this constant, constant conflict of Christ versus Yen in me. In Philippians 2.5, we are exhorted to take on the same mentality of Christ himself, being humble and submissive to the will, the desires, and the long-term outcomes of God the Father. In Romans 12.1-2, we are exhorted to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that by testing we may discern what is the will of God, his good, acceptable, and perfect will. And in Romans 8, 28, we are exhorted to keep hopeful because we know that for those who love God, He will work out all things together for their good. For they have been called according to His purpose. For those that God foreknew, He predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He, Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, this tension of experience happened during the first generation of new believers whose citizenship is in heaven, but they were wrestling with what it means to be a Christian, with what a Christian believes, and how our Christian belief ought to guide our behavior toward unity for the glory of God and harmony with each other, especially when cultures collide. As Christ's followers became his witnesses to the ends of the earth, the multicultural first-generation Christians had to wrestle with what is of Christ and what is of Yen. Over the next two weeks in Acts 15, we're going to be looking at the gospel and conflict. This week in verses 1 to 29, we have conflict over what the gospel is and how the gospel teaches us to handle conflict. Next week, Mick is going to dive into the results of the gospel's answer to conflict and also 
preaching the gospel in spite of that conflict. Acts 15 is a beautiful example of how God can guide all circumstances, even incredibly intense conflict, to His glory. From our perspective, we may see division, but in God's mathematics, He causes multiplication. This week, as we look at verses 1 to 29, we'll see an exciting, thriving church in Antioch encounter conflict and doctrinal debate as the old challenges the new. We'll see the leaders of the church of Antioch seek clarity from the apostles and elders in Jerusalem and how the apostles and elders of Jerusalem carefully considered and debated the apparent clash, they, how they used Scripture to inform and guide their decisions. And we'll look at their deliberation to write an exhortation to these culturally and linguistically diverse citizens of heaven to deliberately endeavor toward unity rather than trying to enforce uniformity. So for those of you who, like me, enjoy an outline, I've got three days. Verses 1 to 5, we've got debate. Verses 6 to 18, we've got discern. And verses 19 to 29, we've got deliberate or deliberate. We'll probably cover both. Now, there are two bonus Ds in here as well. We, we could talk about discord and we could talk about distinction, but since the human brain loves three points, it likes four points and ignores five points, we're just going to stick with debate, discern, deliberate. So, let's dive into this. Verses 1 and 2, but some men came down from Judea to teach and were teaching the brothers Unless you were circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders with this question. So, Paul and Barnabas had been on a massive gospel and church planning tour throughout Asia Minor. And they'd been back in Antioch for a while when some men from Judea come down and they start to spread false teaching about the gospel and about salvation. Now, circumcision was in fact commanded by God as a custom for all of Abram's, Abram's descendants in Genesis 17. But that was after Abram had believed God and had been considered righteous in Genesis 15:6. Paul says in Galatians 5.3, I testify again to you that every man who accepts circumcision, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. So what's going on here? Do we have men that are saying, okay, you've just got to be circumcised and then, then you're sweet? No, it's, it's actually much deeper than that. It's much more than that. These men were essentially saying that Gentiles had to become Jews and obey the Mosaic Covenant if they wanted to be saved. Now, that reference to the custom of Moses refers not just to Genesis 17 or the writings of Moses that God handed down to him um, on the mountain. The Pharisees also believed in what's called the oral tradition. They believed that when God was giving Moses what to write in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, he was also explaining it to Moses but told Moses not to write that down. And to those Pharisaic Jews, because both came from Yahweh, both came from God, they both carried the same authority. And side note, the oral tradition was finally written down in 70 AD. But I digress. The question that arose about circumcision here, it was, it was this. Is it a picture or is it a prerequisite? Is it an example or is it essential? Is it cultural or is it crucial for our salvation? Now, Paul argued that circumcision was an example which God had woven into the Jewish culture as a physical picture of what being set apart was like the sacrifice that faith requires. In referring to the custom of Moses, the men from Judea were essentially arguing that believers in Christ must first convert to Judaism 
And since circumcision was crucial for Jews, being handed down to Abram for all generations, it was thus a prerequisite for salvation. Can you feel the tension here? It's more than a painful procedure with a flint knife at eight days after birth or becoming a proselyte. It's a command that all your customs, your diet, your clothing style, your annual routine, all of those things, that everything, everything that is familiar about you needs to change. And it needs to match another culture. Now, growing up in America, we celebrated Thanksgiving on the third Thursday of November. When I went to college in Canada, we had a different Thanksgiving. In Australia, we don't have Thanksgiving at all. In fact, we're more inclined to tell people what we're not than what we are. How are you going? Not bad. Ah, you come from Canada, hey? Where's that? Not as far as Darwin. What are you up to next Saturday? Not sure. Now that one's fair, because I'm, I'm not sure what I'm up to next Saturday either. When I was in Canada, I observed Canadian Thanksgiving. I didn't get time off on that third Thursday of November as I was used to. But that's just one holiday. Imagine being told that everything familiar needs to change. Your rituals, your dress, your diet, they all need to match up with a new culture. Only then can you be saved. In reality, that's not actually like most of the other world religions. Clean up your act or obey the five noble truths, make yourself better, and then you'll be saved. Maybe. But that brings up this question. What does it actually mean to be saved? What comes to your mind when you hear that word saved or salvation? According to the Lexham Theological Dictionary, salvation is the rescue from a state of danger and restoration to wholeness and prosperity. In the Bible, people are saved from foreign nations, from enemies, from the penalty of sin. Salvation also entails health, wholeness, and victory. The biblical story that the Jews would constantly come back to when talking about salvation and when looking forward to a hope of restoration was the Exodus. And the Exodus is a pattern that's repeated all throughout the Old Testament and all throughout the New Testament. It tells of how God saved his people from slavery. And all the time he told them, I am taking you to the promised land. See, it's no good being saved out of slavery if you're just going to wander around in the wilderness and God's going to leave you at that. God didn't intend for the Israelites to wander in the wilderness. He took them to the borders of the promised land, but then they refused to enter out of fear. So the wilderness wanderings were a consequence for their faithlessness for a time. Let me ask this. What is God working us in us as individuals? Maybe as families, maybe even as the church community? Are we walking in the way that he wants us to go? Or are we standing in the way of what he wants to accomplish in us and through us? I admit, throughout different times in my life, I do both. That's how we are as humans. None of us is going to get this perfect, and praise God for his glorious grace. Throughout our lives, God is going to allow us to wander for a time, but always in order to grow our faith. Sometimes, yes, as a consequence of our sin or our faithlessness, but it is always with the end goal of restoration and bringing us into newness of life. He is always working to bring us to something, not just from something. And that something else that he is wanting to bring us to is the abundant life of Christ. So moving on to Acts 15, 2. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem 
to the apostles and the elders about this question. So there are three things from this verse to point out. First, there is a place for disagreement. And sometimes there's a place for heated argument. The word dissension here in Greek, which I can't even hope to pronounce properly, and this form of Greek is pretty much a dead language anyway, but stasiatis, I think, is used as dissension four times in the book of Acts. Twice in chapter 3, it refers to dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Again, in chapter 24, it's used in reference to dissension among the Jews in the whole world. Now, there's kind of a funny side note here, but Paul is a main player in every single reference to this word dissension in the book of Acts. Can you kind of get that from his personality and the force that he writes with? Especially if you read Galatians or listened to Galatians this last week, he gets insanely passionate about his thoughts on those who are of the circumcision. I won't go into it yet because it'll just take me on a massive tangent. This was not just a disagreement about a color of curtains, music style, or whether or not we should have a midweek service. This was a deep doctrinal, scriptural disagreement and debate. When it comes to salvation issues, Paul and Barnabas did not back down. Paul says this in Galatians 2.5. He says, We did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. Oh, this is going to sound really weird coming from me because if, if you know me, you know I am pretty conflict-averse, but the truth is more important than anyone's feelings. Even mine, especially mine. And God wants us to be, He never wants us to intentionally divide or be abrasive or abusive towards other people, but He wants us to contend for the truth because it is the truth that sets free. It's not the way that I craft a speech. It's not ignoring something. Sometimes the most loving thing we can do is to let things slide. Other times the most loving thing we can do is to step in and lovingly point it out for the benefit of the other person. I'm really fortunate to have a wife that does that for me often and to also have friends that do that for me often. John, you're not on with this. Who will call me out in my sin, in my faithlessness, or whatever it is, and say that I've got to get my head back in the game, I've got to get back into Scripture, whatever it is. They would rather see me walking in truth than living a comfortable, complacent life that is just slightly downsliding away from what God wants me to be. Sliding back into the same things that He saved me from rather than walking toward what He saves me to. Conflict is not inherently wrong. In a sinful, in a sinful world, we need to contend for the truth. Now, we've got a herb basket on our deck, deck and it's, um, well, when I make sure it's well watered, when I used to do that, the soil is more likely to promote flourishing. But even then, if I just drop seeds along the top, not, the seeds aren't going to go into the soil and take root. More than likely, they're going to be picked up by some of the parakeets or some of the birds that like to come up and fly around the trees by our deck. I need to break up that soil a little bit to let the seed get down into the moist, nutrient-rich soil where it can take root, where it can grow, where it can thrive. Oftentimes, conflict can shake up that soil within us so that the word of truth can get through the dry crust and hopefully get down into the soil, take root, and produce fruit in our lives, the fruit of righteousness. But is that truth always clear and obvious? Sadly, no. And that point is, that is clear from point number two. The fact that there was debate implies that there were reasonable arguments for both perspectives. This I found fascinating when I was reading through Galatians. Galatians 2.2, Paul says, It was because of a revelation that I went up and submitted to them, the apostles, the gospel which I'd preached among the Gentiles. 
But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. Now, some biblical scholars put this, most I would say, put this as Paul's writing to, to the Galatians, referring back to this trip to Jerusalem. So here's Paul. He's been a believer for nearly 20 years. He's been, um, he's been presenting and proclaiming the gospel for nearly two decades. And here he goes to the brothers in Jerusalem, and he's like, I just want to be sure, even though I've received this as a revelation from Christ himself, I just want to cross-check and make sure that everything I've been teaching is in line. When he is confronted with this issue, Paul wanted to ensure that he'd been proclaiming the truth just in case he hadn't been. He did this by checking in with Peter, James, and John in Jerusalem when he was with them in person. Now, these debates, they were formal events, not unlike the political or social debates that we have nowadays. In his commentary, Ben Witherington says that the aim of these events was to overcome dissent and produce concord or unity. Wouldn't that be amazing if that was the aim of our debates? Is to overcome dissent and bring unity? That would be amazing. See, as the gospel spreads to the ends of the earth, conflict becomes part of the history of the church because it is made up of humans. But God's goal in conflict is to challenge, sharpen, and bring unity. If unity is God's goal in allowing conflict, we must take, it, take aim at ideas, but not necessarily the ones holding them, especially if those people holding the ideas are amongst the community of believers. Now, don't get me wrong. There are heresies. There are heretics. But we are not judges. So, let me ask this. If we encounter heresy, or one who holds a heretical belief, which would be a heretic, how should we, we respond? I would say pray right away in that moment for wisdom and for discernment and for God's perspective. Now, the practical and actionable response would really need to be in accordance with our understanding of Scripture and also our own spiritual maturity. See, more than just reading the Bible, we need to be educated and able to study and apply the Bible to our own lives. And we must remember that the Bible is not meant to be informational, it is transformational because it reveals to us and helps us to draw near to the God who is by His triune nature relational. Now, when Esther and I were getting to know each other, I asked everybody I could anything I could find out about her. I just wanted to know more about her. So I asked friends, I asked family members, just anything from uh, questions about her history and her upbringing to favorite color and all of these things. And I learned some valuable information. But her close friends and what they knew about her couldn't make my relationship with her any better. That was on me. It's my responsibility, still is. I am the only one who can do my bit to help my relationship with my wife flourish. And I'm not saying I do that particularly well. Other people can give us information and insight, but we are the only ones who determine how close our relationships are. This is true of all of our relationships, horizontally with other people and vertically with our Heavenly Father with our Savior Jesus and with the Holy Spirit who indwells us. So looking back at this practical application to what we need to do if we, um, if we come up to someone with heretical viewpoints, first and foremost, we need to know God. We need to know the Scriptures. We also need to know when to engage or when to walk away. And then we should use our ignorance if if it's because we don't know enough about the topic, we should use our ignorance as a catalyst to be like the Bereans of Acts chapter 17 who eagerly studied the Scripture to find out if it was true. 
We need to be diving into the scriptures with all of these different arguments. But we also need to know when to declare wolf. Here's the main point. We must seek to filter what we believe through the Bible. We must also seek to see those that we disagree with through the lens of God's love and always seek the best according to the truth for his reputation and for theirs. See, our Father has, given, has not given us grace and the Holy Spirit so that we can win arguments, but so that he can win souls through us as we are in relationship with him and each other. Now, this debate had clear implications regarding what it meant to be saved, but perhaps because there was no clear outcome that was reached, and also these men had come from Jerusalem, which was seen as the highest spiritual authority or the mother church, we come to the third point. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders and ask them this question. Sometimes we need to appeal to those with greater biblical understanding, knowledge, or experience to help us clarify and to provide unity as we rely on the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Salvation issues and questions about salvation, they do warrant strenuous debate. And these debates continue even today. Some believe that God specifically chooses who will be saved and who will not. Others believe that since God is love, all people will be saved, regardless of their, their failures in life or who they believe in, or their faith. Some people believe that if Jesus isn't Lord of all aspects of your life, he's not Lord at all, and you may not actually be saved, even if you believe the gospel message. Others believe that a one-time prayer, even if it came from an emotional high, and you just utter the name of Jesus, mere intellectual assent, that's all you need. It's sufficient because once you're saved, you're always saved. And still others believe that when you are saved, you can lose your salvation. And you know what? Pretty much every viewpoint that I've just expressed, except the viewpoint that God is love and everyone's going to be saved regardless of their faith or their failures in life, that's universalism. The other ones have specific scriptures that would support their view and they're reasonable. To a degree. In the Christian life, in all things, we need accountability. When it comes to biblical understanding and interpretation, sometimes we really need counsel. Advised, advice solicited from someone more knowledgeable than us in the subject. But let me add this as well. We are all encouraged to build each other up into the fullness of faith which means that every single believer has a responsibility to grow and to deepen our relationship with God through our understanding of the scriptures, through our reliance on the Holy Spirit, and also through our service toward one another. Remember, no one can relate to God on your behalf. But information and counsel that you receive may help you. In the same way, you cannot relate to God on behalf of any other person. But the Holy Spirit can work through you to give wise advice from the Scriptures, perhaps applied through your life experiences. And that, in turn, can help a brother or a sister in their walk of faith in their life where they're at, wherever they're at. That's the beauty of the Christian body. God working in us all, through us all, to bring all of us to maturity by His Spirit. So seeking counsel from the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem resulted in the first church council, a gathering of the Jerusalem church leaders, to debate this specific matter, to discern from scriptures what is true, and then to declare their deliberation so that the whole body of Christ can benefit. 
Acts 15.3 says, So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. This, to me, I just found incredibly exciting. As you imagine Paul and Barnabas and the others who are journeying back and pretty much everywhere they stop, they're talking about how the Gentiles even had changed their minds, they changed their beliefs. And as a result, we believe that they were saved as well. But I just took such encouragement from this phrase, they brought great joy to all the brothers because of what God was doing. Verses four to six. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order, uh, and order them to keep the law of Moses. So the apostles and the elders gathered together to continue consider this matter. So Paul and Barnabas, they're giving testimony of what God has done and likely the conversion of the Gentiles. But some believers say these men need to be, these men need to become Jews if they want to be saved. I find it fascinating. They are believers as well. And there is debate here. Since Acts 15, Christianity has had numerous different councils to debate some major questions about salvation, about God, about the divine and human natures of Jesus. That's been brought up quite a few times, actually. About the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, the deity, the person of the Holy Spirit, personhood of the Holy Spirit, um, all of these according to the Scriptures, and also one debate in which the establishment of the 27 New Testament books was canonized. Sometimes we need to seek the counsel of others, and thankfully, we benefit from nearly 2,000 years of biblical scholarship and insight that we can use to help guide us. We can help, to help it use, um, use it to guide us to properly understand the original meaning of Scripture and its original context, to evaluate all the various possible interpretations of, of a particular passage discern the timeless truths that guide and guard how we should think and live, and also to determine timely principles that apply to our lives. And this brings us to our second D, discern, verses 6 to 18. In needing counsel on these matters, the early church convened the Jerusalem council and the purpose of the council wasn't simply to end a debate but to discern what was right belief and declare from that right behavior. This, is, this passage is insanely rich, but we'll just highlight a few things as we go, as we go through. After there, there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of, of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So Peter here is referring to Acts chapter 10, where we read that God had been working in this God-fearing Gentile man, Cornelius, and also at the same time, this other God-fearing Jewish man, Peter. And he brought them together in a way that only God can do. And when Cornelius and those of his household had the gospel proclaimed to them, they believed, they received salvation, being saved from the penalty of their sins and brought into newness of new life. And then it was attested to them undeniably by the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, just as that had, as had happened in Acts 2. Now, this is not the first time that Peter's having this debate or that he is conveying his history to the circumcision party in particular. It seems that they had not budged in well over a decade since Acts chapter 11, right after all of this happened. 
But there are two key phrases in here that I, that I just want to draw out. First, he, God, made no distinction between us and them. In Galatians 3, 28 to 29, Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. Neither male nor female. For all are, in, are one in Christ. And if you are in Christ, you are Abram's offspring according to and heirs according to the promise. Now, Paul isn't saying that cultural background is done away with, that gender doesn't matter, social status evaporates. What he is saying is that all the identities that the world system has, that nature has for us, they are secondary to our identity in Christ. Remember that illustration of citizenship. Citizenship is something that I received on a specific date, and so did hundreds of others with me. In the eyes of the Australian government, then and there, there is no distinction between them, between me, or between someone born in Australia. In Christ, there is unity in all of our diversity, which brings us into His kingdom community. And this truth is anchored in the unity of diversity in the eternal community of the Trinity. But how do we enter this unified in Christ community? By having our hearts cleansed by faith. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not of your, your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Galatians 2.16, Paul says, We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Continuing on in Acts 15, Peter raises this question. If there's no distinction, if all are made right with God by faith, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke around their neck that neither our fathers nor us have been able to bear? This phrase, putting, the, putting God to the test, should immediately take us back to after Christ's baptism when he is being tested by Satan. And Satan quotes Scripture to Jesus but misapplies it to him, saying, you know that if you throw yourself down from here, he will send his angels and he won't let your foot strike a stone. And well, how does Christ respond? He says, you must not put the Lord your God to the test. That's the same phrase that's used here. Whereas Satan was misapplying Scripture, Christ called him out on it. And we need to be very cautious in the way that we apply Scripture as well. And always be seeking to encourage and to, to challenge and to exhort people, but to know the context and also know how it applies. I'm also struck by the word that Peter the word order that Peter chooses here. He says, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Rather than focusing on they're going to be saved just like we are, he flips it on its head. We trust that we will be saved. We trust that they will be saved. By what? By the grace of God. Now, after, after Peter speaks, the whole assembly falls silent, and then they listen to Paul and Barnabas as they relate the signs and wonders that God has done through them among the Gentiles, and then James speaks. James says, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, and here he quotes Amos chapter 9. After this I will return. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord. He uh, says the Lord who makes these things known of old. 
So as James listens to this debate, he considers the scriptures and evaluates the moment in history. He draws attention to how this time is prophesied in scripture, particularly Amos 9, verses 11 to 12. He said that God has taken from the Gentiles a people for his name, just as God had taken from the Gentiles Abraham and made him a man for his name. He states that the words of the prophets agree with this conclusion that God is the one who is doing this. Now, he quotes a prophecy that refers to the restoration of the house or the lineage of David in order that the remnant might seek the Lord. And a really fascinating point, of, point in this one is in verse 17 here in Acts 15, where he says, the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. Now, in the original Hebrew, the word there is Edom. But Hebrew, being a consonant-only language when it was written down, when it was translated into Greek in the Septuagint, they rendered it as Adam. So, D-M, D-M, Edom, Adam. And what James is doing here is he's saying that rather than, um, he's saying that rather than referring to Edom, which was also linked to Israel by their history and were estranged, he's saying this applies to all of mankind. As God is going out and opening up salvation to every tongue, every tribe, every nation, as our theme is, the ends of the earth. James, in doing this, he's recalling and quoting this passage, seemingly to use the Septuagint, and he also applies it to his time in history. He's under the direction of the Holy Spirit, and he is doing theology in the moment. And why is this important? This is a huge moment for Christian history and the history of God's redemptive story. And here we have a link back to how solidly founded in Scripture that movement is. When and how God works may often catch us by surprise. But what He will work is clearly attested to in Scripture through prophecy. And that He will work is strongly attested to in the Scriptures and also in our own lives because we experience His faithfulness day by day. We must always, always, always test the spirits, our understanding of the Scripture, and look at circumstances according to His Word. And then they move on from... They move on from um, the debate and discerning into deliberation. Verse 19, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what's been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has, has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogue. So what's James doing here? He has acknowledged that circumcision is not a salvation issue. Gentile believers in Jesus don't need to become Jews in order to be saved. However, as this Jewish and Gentile group of people that God has taken for his name continues to grow, there will be challenges to unity. Some are doctrinal as we've covered. Others are cultural. And yet others are more complex and nuanced than merely cultural. This seems kind of an odd list of prohibitions, at least for us today. Keeping pure of sexual immorality, that seems pretty timeless. But idolatry, what's strangled from blood, what does that mean? And why does James highlight these, these ones rather than forbid other Old Testament commands like, say, the mixing of fabrics or not eating shellfish. 
Well, first, we need to remember that this is a time where virtually every city had a deity that they worshipped. Think Artemis of the Ephesians. We'll see more about her in Acts 19. And many of the rituals around worship involved practices that were completely contrary to what God had commanded in the Old Testament. And also, they were contrary to His good plans and His command. These differences, especially around spiritual, ritual, and moral purity, needed to be addressed. But they also needed to be anchored not in a cultural battle that would change, but in a transcultural truth of God's revealed word. So the four things that James mentions in Acts 15, re, uh, he reiterates in, in verse 29 as well. They're prohibitions for Gentile believers, but they're the same regulations that were given in Leviticus 17 and 18 to Gentiles who were living amongst the community of Israel. Things polluted by idols refers to Leviticus 7 verses, 17, verses 7 and 8, where it says they shall no more sacrifice to their goat demons. It says, If anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them who offers burnt offering or sacrifice does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting for the, and offer it to Yahweh, that man shall be cut off from his people. The reference to blood goes back to Leviticus 17.11. It says, If anyone from the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them, eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats the blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. So it is the blood that makes atonement for life. The reference to the things that are strangled was another reference to, to the blood being poured out or not being poured out and consuming it. Does anyone also of the people of Israel or the strangers who sojourn among them who takes in a hunting beast or a bird that it may be eaten shall pour out its blood and cover it um, with earth. For the life of every creature is in its blood. Its blood is its life. And then in Leviticus 18, the first 25 verses detail all sorts of types of sexual immorality and practices. And in verse 26, we read, But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were here before you did all of these abominations, so that the land became unclean. So the commands in Leviticus refer to Gentiles, foreigners, who are living amongst Israel. But throughout that long, tumultuous history of Israel, God had used even the disloyalty of his people to, to scatter them, to the degree where James says that now Jews had established synagogues all over the known world, in every city. So God even works in spite of sin, in spite of the sin of Israel, to spread his light and his knowledge across the globe. And now, as the Gentiles from every city become believers, they are grafted in among, with many different people of different cultural languages and backgrounds. And they share in the nourishing root of the olive tree that we read about in Romans 11. And James gives four practical Levitical commands of not just moral or social taboos, but principles of worship to address the core areas of desire in our lives, from spirituality to social responsibility to interpersonal relationships to marital intimacy. And he says these can only be fully met in having a right relationship with God. From a right relationship with God, we can righteously relate to other people. Through all of this, even throughout the sin of Israel, the falling away, God is never disloyal. And he promises to them, um, as Romans 11 says, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in 
For if you, Gentile believers, were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted in contrary to nature into the cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? See, God has not given up His faithfulness to Israel, even and especially today. Which is really comforting to me considering the situation. And God will not give up His faithfulness to sanctify us and to work together all things for the good of those who love Him and have been called according to His purpose. And His purpose is that we would be made more like Christ. He has grafted us into the root, His covenant promise that through Abraham all the nations of the earth will be blessed. You and I are the fruit of that promise. And having received salvation from sin to new life, we are called to flourish and also to nourish others. In the context of the early church, it has to do with right worship expressed righteously as God commanded the Jews and to walk in right relationships horizontally and vertically. It's so fascinating to me that the debate was initially about salvation But where the apostles take it is not about salvation, but it is about practical Christian living and unity in community. And I'm well and truly over time, so I'm going to wrap up here. There's a lot more that could be said from verses 22 to 29. Um, there's, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Um, Very, very quick wrap-up from that is that James and the apostles essentially um, discredit those who have the false beliefs, and they accredit Paul and Barnabas and those who are with them. They substantiate the claims by sending Silas and others and a letter Uh, to go along with them as well. That ultimately says, it's, and we'll just wrap up here, it's in verses 28 and 29. It says, It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So what's become, what came to them as, is this a salvation issue, is turned around and said, this is how we can pursue Christian unity together amongst all the different cultural backgrounds. We anchor it, we root it in Scripture. It must be established in that. But a lot of those other things that are, that are cultural, if they're not Uh, If they don't directly go into Scripture, when we apply Scripture to them, we can bring unity. um, And a lot of, um, rather than enforcing uniformity and trying to make everyone look the same or sing the same or smell the same or do the same. So having debated the issues, they discern from the Scriptures and... uh, they, and they deliberate and encourage the new believers to be deliberate in the way that they live. If we want to do well, we must anchor our belief in Scripture, our behavior in humility, and in love for, for the truth and each other. We must be willing to debate, be discerning in and yielded to Scripture, and be deliberate to consider each other as better than ourselves and make every effort empowered by the Holy Spirit to grow the presence of that life-giving fruit of the Spirit in our lives. If we do these things, God will be able to use conflict to break the soil and allow His Word to take root and bear fruit in the works of our lives. And it will show that the gospel is His message of redemption, reconciliation, and restoration that he claims it is. 
So let's engage in conflict, but not in order to be right, but to be righteous. Not so as to win arguments, but so as to win souls and see more people brought into relationship with the lover of our souls, our Savior, Jesus the Christ. Yeshua HaMashiach. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that your glory is shown in your word and you even choose to show it in our lives. God, I thank you so much for preserving your word for us that through it we come to know you who is relational, who is the truth. And I pray that it would take deep root in my own life and in the lives of everyone that are not just in Calvary Chapel, Newcastle, but in all of your believers from every tongue, tribe, and nation. I thank you that you are using us as a small, maybe sometimes seemingly insignificant, but exactly the way you want us community. God, continue to lead us, to guide us, to grow us. Any challenges, any conflicts that we are going through now, we just ask that you would lead and guide us according to your scriptures and according to your Holy Spirit. That you would create us into the people that you want us to be. That we would be more like your, your son. More like Christ, day in, day out. I thank you for this body of believers. Thank you for this family that I have the privilege of serving alongside of and serving. We ask that you continue to work for your glory, your honor, and your praise. Amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.